Guys, today is Easter Resurrection Sunday, and we're glad to celebrate with you. Um, you know, probably many of you know um, that this Easter celebration that we celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus, is originally rooted in what the Hebrew people referred to as the Passover. Um, and the Passover is a major Jewish holiday. It celebrated the exodus or the kind of the, the, saving, the saving process, the rescuing of the Egyptian out of Egypt from the Hebrew people who were slaves in Egypt. They get rescued out of Egypt. It happened every year on the, in the Hebrew calendar on the 15th day of the month of Nisan, not to be confused with the car company, and, which is in the spring. And according to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, and the second book is Exodus. According to the book of Exodus, God commanded Moses to tell the Israelites to take a lamb's blood and to mark it on the doorway so that the angel of death who would come during that final plague, that during that final plague, the angel of death would pass over the house. If the blood was there on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. But if the blood was not on the doorpost, then the angel of death would kill the firstborn son as a sort of judgment. And so the, the Hebrew people, that's what they did for this Passover, this first Passover in Egypt. They put the blood of a lamb on their doorway, and the angel of death came. The angel of death passed over them. And then when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, when he awoke, he had his son and heir deceased in his home, and he ordered the Israelites to leave. And he even asked Moses to bless him as they departed. And after they departed, God commanded them that they needed to celebrate the Passover at the same time every single year, and it would become a yearly statue. And so we've been studying Leviticus for the last 20 weeks or so, and in Leviticus chapter 23, which is where we'd be today, even if it weren't Easter, we read this. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. And for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now, on the day that Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the day before his crucifixion, Jesus celebrated this Passover meal. And some scholars suggest that they celebrated it actually a day early in anticipation of what was going to take place the next day. But the historical records, although they aren't perfect, we know with quite accuracy you know, probably 90% of the way, what that meal looked exactly like for Jesus. We, which is pretty cool, if you think about it, that we know what every single Hebrew family was doing during that week, the same week that Jesus was crucified. The Passover meal was simple then, and a little bit more complicated now, but still quite simple. Some appetizers, a lamb, unleavened bread, and wine. 
For the Jews, the Passover was this celebration of the, of the nation's release from slavery, from the release from bondage. And it was only later that the disciples would look back to Jesus' last supper and they would begin to make all of the connections of how deeply significant this process actually was. And so what I want to do for you today, and I hope that it's meaningful for you, is I would like to walk through that Passover meal, the process. I want you to see exactly what they did in the week leading up and the significance that we find in Christ and in this Easter celebration. So before the Passover, um, on the 10th day of the month, they would select the lamb that was going to be sacrificed and eaten. And so on that 10th day of the month, everybody in Jerusalem was selecting the lamb, okay? Now, you have to remember that this is a big deal, the Passover celebration. And so there's Jewish people from all over the ancient Near East who are in Jerusalem for this celebration. And then on that 10th day of Nisan of that month, all of a sudden, here comes this man who's a rabbi, a teacher, and he's riding on a donkey into the city. And people are shouting all kinds of things. Hosanna. They're shouting out, this is, this is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. This is the coming king, maybe. And so as everybody else in Jerusalem is selecting the lamb that they're going to sacrifice, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Remember that it says that Jesus went into the temple and they were buying and selling sacrifices, right? Imagine how Jesus must have felt knowing that he was coming as the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and then he comes in on that 10th day to be the Lamb who would be selected, and he goes into the temple, and he sees these crummy animals, these peg-leg sheep, you know? That one's, its leg is five times longer than the rest of its legs, and he sees these lambs being sold. The significance that this meant for him versus what it meant for everybody else. You know, in, that, in those crowds that we remind ourselves of when we celebrate Palm Sunday, those crowds that cheered for him as king that day would shout for his crucifixion in less than a week. But it was in that procession that Jesus is coming as the king of peace, the prince of peace, but he's also presenting himself as the unblemished sacrifice on the day when everybody else would be selecting their own sacrificial lamb. Actually, Jesus would have been crucified at the exact same time as all of the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. So you can imagine as everybody's lined up in the temple and the outside, outside courtyard and they're waiting for their turn to have these, these, their sacrificial Passover lamb be killed, you can imagine everyone's dismay when Jesus finally gives up his last breath and the curtain tours from top to bottom and everybody braces themselves for the rush of glory which was enough to kill someone who went in unprepared. This is the atmosphere of the crucifixion. Well, on the evening of the Passover meal, guests and family members would come into the host's home for celebration. For Jesus and his disciples, it was the upper room. And a servant would always be there to wash their feet. And this was considered the lowliest task for the lowest class of people. But this is the task that Jesus set out to do, as we see recorded in John 13, 
that it was typically reserved for the bottom rung, but Jesus took it upon himself willingly. And this is especially important because Jesus wasn't just some family member. He was the only begotten son of God. And this only begotten son of God, as he bends down to wash their feet, he's washing the feet of those to whom he would soon become the paternal head. In other words, Jesus would be the new Adam of a new family. He would be the new father of a new family born of the spirit, born of blood, and here that father is washing the feet of these people. Indeed, we see Mark 10.45 rings true that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, over the course of this Passover meal, they drank four cups of wine, okay? Some of you are like, yeah. <laughs> they drank four cups of wine over this Passover meal, these ritual cups of wine. And before each cup of wine was consumed, a prayer was spoken and then a promise was read. And these promises were all rooted in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. And so there's four promises, four verbal promises that are recorded in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. And each of these promises would be read before the um, ritual wine would be consumed. I'll read Exodus 6 now. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God. One, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Four, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the first recitation was followed by the first cup, and this is what was read. I am the Lord. I will bring you out, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so they would pray, and they would read that first promise, and then they would drink the glass of wine. And at this point in time, the head of the house would go and dip bitter herbs, traditionally lettuce or celery, into salt water or vinegar. And this was to, as a remembrance of the bitter years that were spent in slavery in Egypt. And the, the host would do that and would pass it to the guest of honor, who would take it and pass it to the person next to him, and so on and so forth. Now, after everyone had taken part of these bitter herbs, the food would be removed, and then traditionally, the youngest son at the table would begin the ceremonial dialogue of questions with the, with the host or with the father, and this would happen while the second cup of wine was being poured. So has everybody kind of following me so far? Um, so the, the youngest son would ask something to this effect, why is this night different from all other nights. On all other nights, we eat leavened bread or unleavened bread, but tonight we only eat unleavened bread. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs, but this night only bitter. And why do we dip the herbs twice? On all other nights, we eat meat roasted or stewed or boiled, but on this night, only roasted meat. And then the father would respond by recounting the history of Israel. And what he shared, this is fascinating, what he shared is almost identical to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 38. 
So when, at, when Stephen, when he's on trial, Stephen, the first martyr, when he's on trial, he recounts the history of Israel. And what Stephen records is almost an identical Passover response that the father would give. Matter, it's so close that scholars wonder if that's exactly what Stephen was doing, that he was giving the Passover speech. Some of the key parts, I'm not going to read that because it's 38 verses long, but some of the key parts... God appeared to our father Abraham and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred to go into the land that I will show you. And he went out, but God gave him no inheritance in the land. God told him that his offspring would be enslaved for 400 years. Eventually, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, two generations, three generations, sold him into Egypt, but God was with Joseph and rescued him out of all of his trials. Eventually, a great famine struck the land, and Jacob, Joseph's father, heard that there was grain in Egypt, and so he sent his sons to buy grain. Once that story unfolds, and they realize that Joseph is their brother, and all is reconciled, Jacob and his whole family go down to Egypt where he dies. And over the years, the Hebrew people increased and increased, and then a king arose who was not familiar with Joseph. And he subjected the Israelites to slavery, to infanticide. And it was around this time that Moses was born. That Moses would become the deliverer who would rescue Israel out of Egypt through God's mighty hand. And many years later, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the form of a fire in a bush. And God commissioned him to send him back to Egypt and with a mighty hand and ten plagues, although the people would reject Moses, he would wind up being the one who brought them out of Egypt. And then God promised that one day he would raise up another prophet just like Moses. Now, after Acts 7.38, this is where Stephen's speech deviates. And you'll notice that once his speech deviates, the Pharisees' response is to rip their clothes and demand his execution because Stephen then extrapolates the rest of the story to the cross. But in the traditional Passover meal, after this dialogue, the food and the wine are returned to the table, including the lamb, and then the head of the household would explain the significance of the meal and the family would sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 which we don't have time to look at now. But now it was time for the second cup of wine. And while the second cup of wine is prepared and the host prays, he recites then the second promise from Exodus 6.6. I will deliver you from slavery. Then the guests would wash their hands again as they prepared for the unleavened bread and lamb. And it's at this point in time, at this point in time in the evening, that the host would break bread with his guest of honor. And so you know how they sit kind of like a, in, in like a circle, and the guest of honor would sit next to the host, right? And so the way that it would work is they would break bread with the guest of honor, and then the guest of honor would turn and break bread with the person next to him, and so on and so forth until they made it all the way around. And it's at this point in time that Jesus deviates from the traditional recitation that would happen during the breaking of bread 
and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he then says to them, one of you will betray me. And they say, who? And he says, it's the one that I have shared the dipped bread. So in other words, Jesus, sitting next to the guest of honor, who he made who? Judas. He breaks the bread and he gives it to him. Truly, Jesus did break bread for his enemy as Judas just becomes a representation of so many of us, of all of us. Jesus broke bread with all of his enemies so that his sacrifice would make them dearest friends and truly would make them guests of honor in his kingdom. The parallels really are beautiful. After the meal was time for the third cup of wine and the host would pray and then would recite the third promise from Exodus 6.6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Then it was time for the fourth and final cup of wine, followed by more psalms to be sung. The host would say, the fourth promise, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And once again, it's around this point, maybe after the third, but scholars think around this point that Jesus would deviate from the traditional recitation and would say, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Because after all, the promise given at that time is, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, which is the new covenant. That is the promised new covenant. And at that point in time, Jesus talks about his blood being poured out to form that new covenant and to enact it. You have to wonder how confused all of his friends were at this point in time. I mean, really, yes, they'd heard him, but they didn't get it. I mean, they obviously didn't get it, even though he was like, I have to die. And Peter's like, no, you don't. You know, he's like, yes, I do, Peter. Nah. And so they obviously didn't connect all the dots. Jesus is proclaiming the truth of the gospel to them in plain clarity, but they are still currently oblivious. But he's going to create a new covenant. He's going to create a new people. He's going to usher in a new era in redemption. Well, on the night that Jesus celebrated the Passover, After this most treasured ritual meal, it says in the Gospels that they went and they sang another hymn or a psalm, more accurately. They went out and sang more psalms, then they went to the Garden of the Gethsemane. And in that garden, Jesus wrestled with the cost of his obedience. Jesus knew what this would cost him. He knew that this is the first time and the last time that God would turn his, God the Father would turn his back on God the Son, that he would be separated from his Father, that he would become sin on the cross, he would become the curse of sin, that he would die for the sins of the world, that he would pay the full penalty of God's wrath. He would fulfill all of the prophecies from the Old Testament, more than 350 prophecies. 
he would complete the work that the Father sent him to do because he was called the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Four cups of wine in, the disciples couldn't stay awake. Do you ever wonder why the disciples couldn't stay awake? Jesus is like, will you pray with me? And they're like, you got it, Jesus. And then they fall asleep. After four cups of wine, you probably wouldn't stay awake for prayer either. <laughs> you guys are allowed to laugh. You guys are like, I gotta laugh about wine. We're in a bar. It's fine. <laughs> okay? But Jesus prayed at it all alone because his friends, four cups of wine in, they're sleepy. They've been singing psalms all night. It's his burden to carry all on his own. And truly, no one can help him with it. Within hours, Jesus would be arrested. He would be dragged before a false court. He would stand before a false king, King Herod. And he would stand before a governor who falsely thought that he was in control, even though Jesus told him plainly, you have no power unless it's been given to you. And Jesus would be executed. But this was God's plan all along. This is what God had ordained as we read in Isaiah 53. It was the will of God to crush him. It was the only way to reconcile to restore the relationship between God and man. It was the only way to undo the curse of sin and death. Jesus would have to drink the cup of God's wrath. He would have to swallow death and then raise from the dead as the first of a new spiritual humanity. And this is what we celebrate on Easter. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Realize that for many, many, many years, year after year, the Hebrew people had obediently celebrated the Passover every spring to look back at their exodus, to look back at their slavery, to look back at the mighty work of God. But the irony in this is that all along, it was actually looking forward to something. It was looking forward to their true salvation, to the true slavery to Egypt, which is our slavery to sin and death, to the true hero who would come and rescue them. And it's, it's just so beautiful because with each cup of wine, they would proclaim the promise of what God had done, but more significantly of what God had done or would do. And if maybe some of you guys have been at Revolve for four or five years, and you remember when we, before the pandemic, when we were in North Cape May, our one Easter sermon, because we don't do anything normal, our one Easter sermon was all about wine. Does anybody remember the wine Easter sermon? I see you. I'm judging you in my heart. That one stuck out, huh? Wine throughout the scriptures refers to joy. Right? And Jesus takes it and makes it synonymous with his blood at the same time because it's his blood which brings us true joy and it's his blood which is going to lead us into joy as he executes these promises. Now think about these promises that the Hebrew people would recite to themselves year after year after year. I'm going to read them again. I will bring you out from Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In the book of Exodus, God used that final plague of the Passover to bring the people out of Egypt, to bring the people out of slavery. He extended his hand, killing the firstborn son of anyone who wasn't protected by the lamb's blood. And those who were protected were pardoned, they were passed over, and they were rescued because of their faith in obeying that blood sacrifice. But all of this points to Jesus. That Jesus, having celebrated the Passover for 33 years in this mortal life, he would celebrate it one more time, but this time, his final time, he would become the Passover lamb. That the death of the only begotten Son of God would pay the cost of sin. The the cost of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And to all who trusted in his blood and hid under its covering, God would redeem his judgment satisfied, poured out on the Son so that it could pass over you. Those who trust in Christ, in his sacrifice, those who make Christ their Passover lamb are brought out of Egypt and they are brought into freedom. They are brought out of the curse of sin and death. They are rescued by Jesus' outstretched arms and God's mighty work. He makes us his people. He gives us a new life. We are a new humanity born of the spirit and the blood so that we, fully reconciled, can be his people finally, and he can be our God. This is what the Passover represented. This is what it represented all along, but its first Passover was just a shadow of the true Passover. I will bring you out from Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So as you celebrate this, realize the danger. You see, because for thousands of years, the Hebrew people celebrated the Passover year after year, after year, after year. And many of them never truly understood its significance. Because when the actual Passover lamb came in on a donkey riding into the city and was chosen to be the sacrifice, and then when he was slaughtered as the king of kings, and then when the veil was torn from top to bottom, they didn't see it. They had poured over the scriptures for their entire lives. These priests, these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and the scribes, and they didn't see it. We may not celebrate Passover year after year after year, but it is deeply embedded in our culture to celebrate Christmas and Easter and Palm Sunday year after year after year. And from here we'll go out with our families, many who have come to visit us, and we'll go have brunch, and we'll go look for eggs, go to the boardwalk. We'll do all the things that you're supposed to do on Easter in Cape May County. But in the midst of this, will we miss the point? 
Will we simply proclaim it year after year, or will we let it sink into our chest? Have you trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven. He was resurrected so that you could live forever, and he sent his Holy Spirit so that you could follow him as king. By faith, have you been brought out of spiritual Egypt? Or are you still enslaved to the power of sin and its ultimate consequence, death? God has already done the work to redeem you and save you on the cross, but have you placed your trust in him? Have you appropriated his blood on your doorpost, so to say? Jesus has already taken your judgment upon himself as the sacrificial Passover lamb, but have you received his forgiveness? Or are you trying to shoulder it for yourself? See, God did all of this so that he could have a restored relationship with his creation. Now we are free to boldly enter into the most holy place and enjoy him, just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Are we pursuing him with joy? Jesus was delighted. He said, how I have looked forward to celebrating this meal with you. And now we have something far greater, something far more intimate that we can have access to today and something far more spectacular that we can look forward to. Because today, even as believers, as followers of Jesus, we still live in the shadow of what is to come. But one day we will clearly not just in spiritual reality, but in our current day reality of what I experience now, we will have the fruition of these promises. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. And I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that Truth would not get lost in ritual. The ritual of church, the ritual of celebration, the ritual of festivities. I pray that we would remember that all of these festivities, these holy convocations, are designed to remind us to speak to our souls. Father, I pray that you would speak to our souls. For those who know you, I pray that you would give them renewed joy because you have done it. For those who are broken and weary, I pray that you would give them renewed hope because you're coming back soon. And for those who do not know you, for those who are trapped in the ritual, like the Pharisees and so many others, I pray that you would unveil their eyes the same way you tore that veil down in the temple. Let them see today for the first time, God, the work that you have done, and let them fall to their knees and surrender and worship. God, I pray that you would bless the rest of these days and this week, that you would keep our minds fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, our Passover lamb, our resurrected king. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great day.